The, uh, the Chinese have been studying you since the first Gulf War. That war shocked the hell out of the Chinese military establishment, as it did most nations around the world, the military establishments of nations around the world. They'd never seen so lopsided a victory based on so technologically intensive a form of superiority. And they have spent 30 years studying everything you do and how you learn and your capabilities and figuring out how to beat you. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Hello, I'm Tyler Pitroff. Welcome to Preble Hall. In today's episode, we present a recent roundtable discussion among several faculty members of the United States Naval Academy's History Department. The subject of the day was our individual tools of choice for teaching naval history to midshipmen during their plebe year. As you will see, this quickly evolved into an enthusiastic discussion of the critical role that history plays in the education of the modern naval officer, an appropriate turn for a meeting taking place within the Academy's Wargaming Lab. Featured in today's episode are Navy Lieutenant Mackenzie Mack Anderson and Air Force Major Joe Ennett, as well as Associate Professor Marcus Jones. I can talk about it, but probably not in ways better informed than my colleagues here. I, I teach it a little bit differently, and I think that reflects the diversity of approaches characteristic of a department that uh, tenures and provo- promotes along conventional academic lines. We, we don't mandate particular approaches to naval history, That's fair. Uh, and we, we provide even our, our rotational military instructors with wide latitude to define their course content consistent with the overarching course goals and the, uh, the institutional objectives uh, educationally. I tend, to begin, I tend to begin my courses with an introduction to the overarching strategic framework within which sea power, um, one word, and sea power, two words, can be situated. I, we, we talk at the outset in the most fundamental ways, because remember, these are 18-year-old, 19-year-old, maybe sometimes a little bit older than that, but by and large, they're young officer candidates without any experience in military organizations, little knowledge, if any, of history, uh, let alone that history that bears directly on their professional development as, as officer candidates. I, 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 talk about, I talk about the levels of war um, in much the most obvious ways you would expect to find in, in ground-level textbooks. We discuss a little bit of Jeffrey Till's triangular concept of, of how sea power can be understood and the, and the ways in which naval forces are employed. But I also make a point of providing them with an understanding of the substructure behind the employment of forces that make naval forces possible and expedient to use in part because I, it's, it's so fundamental to the vocabulary of effective leadership, officership, decision-making in the modern age that I can't, I can't really imagine a competent officer, field grade or, or, or flag level in particular, who can't speak the language of technology, technology development and transition, who can't speak in just oblique ways at least of what acquisition processes look like, they have to understand those things to, to, to grasp the essentially materiel 
intensive character of naval power. And this might seem like a tall order for kids who are 18 or 19, but I haven't found it to be. I think I do lose a handful, uh, and maybe that's a handful that you would expect to lose anyway. Mm -hmm. But by and large, uh, having adult conversations in straightforward, carefully elaborated, but also mature ways about science, research and development, uh, what prototyping is, we talk about that, these kinds, and then, you know, program management on some level. We talk about these things for maybe a couple of days at the beginning of the semester, but then we talk about all of history in these terms. And we can situate Humphrey's original frigates in the context of a basic acquisition framework. You know, and I, I don't tell them that, that, that we're talking about budget activities 6.1 through 6.7, but I, I, I provide that array for them on the whiteboard. You know, down here, fundamental science all the way up here you know, utilization and possibly disposal. You know, you have to think about a ship in terms of what you're gonna do with it at the end of its service life. There's residual value, there's an environmental impact. All of these things are as relevant to Congress and to the public as, as the investment they made in the original ship. And they all, you know, when you talk to them about these things, they get it and they see the Navy much more holistically and naval power, especially in a joint context because they're going to graduate into a fleet that doesn't do anything by itself won't conceive of any major undertakings on behalf of the national interest in isolation from the other services, especially the Air Force and the two major theaters that matter. So I, I, I tend to start with that and work down. And we get to concepts of naval warfare by the second week, second and a half week roughly, and those are expressed especially periodically through the specific naval period of, of time that we're looking at historically. But, that's, that's, that's sort of my approach at the outset. There. I'm actually loving this right now because the three of us represent very different aspects of a very complicated monster. Yeah. And that's how I always try to approach, at least with the students, the, the Navy and what both the Navy is, what the Navy does, and why the Navy exists. Or, or why sea power exists, why a nation needs sea power. And it's more than just, you know, I always start, I was like, hey, why are y'all here? What's the purpose of a Navy? And you get a bunch of random answers, a lot of very much, you know, reading out of reef points exactly what the book says, you know, they're supposed to memorize what the Navy is, and I was like, no, but, but what's it supposed to do? And I generally get some variation of the often regurgitated and not entirely accurate hurt people and break things on the water, or when in the Marine Corps, amphibiously, like they have any idea what that really means at this point. But that's not entirely accurate, but you know, Max, you know, bring up the, 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 the three very, very different versions, and you know, the Navy as both an organization and a political animal way different from the Army. The Army's job is to go to combat. And that's why early America, it was only a, it was only a department of war. Or they only stood up a full army on, in an, essentially an existential crisis requiring war. That's why we didn't have a standing army. That and the founding fathers didn't trust a standing army, something, something English Civil War. But a navy had to exist all the time because it had economic impacts, diplomatic impacts. And that's why I start, like you said, with the, the levels of war. I go from policy, grand strategy, strategy, ops, tactics. And then I also throw in the dime model. So the, 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 the um, yeah, instruments yeah. of national power, it's the domains of influence. I think there's more overlap but than there is than there is uh, space between these, oh, these conceptions of, of 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 how to teach the 
the history of the U.S. Oh, yeah. I, and, I often make the case in talking about strategic roles and missions, uh, presence and deterrence and uh, of different kinds, mm -hmm. um, control and so forth. I and, talk about the yeah. most important mission of the U.S. Navy being to push power inshore. Um, and that, that, I think, plays directly to the kinds of overlapping strategic purposes to which all the services can collectively be thought to, uh, yeah. to be put. And that's, I think, something that... the. Generally speaking, the ideas of power projection, forward presence, what the Navy does today is something that they learn, whether it's from reef points or prono, to a small degree. I was going to say, they, they, I have right. been, I have had those doctrinal terms regurgitated <laughs> yes. at me so many times, but and not a, a, not a one that, of them knows what that, power projection that's, means. That's exactly the problem, is they get the, the kind of regurgitated buzzwords. And then what our job is, is to both explain what they actually mean today and the way I take my class is really how did we get to the point where those have become the buzzwords, where that is yeah. the strategy? How did mm. the kind of philosophy of naval thinking <laughs> get to this point of capital ship theory? Would, which would, is when you put it that I, way, it, it, it yeah. How, how did the, how how did the, the the fact of presence and almost permanent forward deployment become the strategy, at the expense of anything like a coherent strategy? <laughs> I would say one of the most interesting, I don't want to say ex exercises in, in the class is always when I ask students, okay, what is strategy? And then what is a naval strategy? And you get a whole bunch of like, uh, deer in headlights, absolute confusion. And there's never been a good, solid, clear, easy to teach definition of strategy especially when you start narrowing it down, you know, below national, above military, and then try to get something sort of specific like naval strategy. I think I would be one of those deer in the headlights. They, if I was I, sitting in your class right now and you asked me that. It's, it's a, there are so many different competing definitions, and the one that I always try to use, and my favorite definition of all the ones that I've ended up using, uh, is actually a Navy one. It's Stephen Luce's definition was that strategy is how to organize victory in advance. Now, a lot of that comes from how he con uh, conceptualized strategy in the 1880s and the 1890s, trying to establish a naval war college, very much in that yeomany school of thought where everything had to be boiled down scientifically. He was looking for a set of precepts and, and uh, you know, maxims he could lay out and say, this is what naval strategy is. And he was thinking much more in those logistical management terms of everything's orderly and a logical flow, and the reality is, as Clausewitz puts, war is chaos. You can't organize it. It's the best you can do to organize chaos and pray to God that your plan is flexible enough that you can change it. I have to make a plug for a book I use in the class that I think really captures Please. what Joe was just talking about, this idea of how do we define strategy? How did the strategy get to where we are today? And it's by a retired Coast Guard captain, uh, Bob Watts, who uh, teaches mm. down at the National War College. And it's called, the, the title isn't great, and I've talked to him about this, and he acknowledges it, but American Sea Power and the Obsolescence, obsolescence of Capital Ship Theory. Yeah, I wouldn't um, pick that up at yeah, Barnes & Noble Exactly. Either, yeah. um, but it's one, I use the entire book in my class. It's about uh, 200 pages. But what he does is he traces from Mahan, the late 1800s, up through the modern time, how did we become so obsessed with the idea of a capital ship? Whether it was a battleship, whether it was a carrier, uh, et cetera, why did we make that shift away from other paradigms of thought, 
Two, we must protect battleship. We must protect carrier, right? How do we get to that point? And he talks about the various strategies that have been implemented, whether it was prior to World War I, whether it's the Reagan Revolution, and how they all inevitably go back to, we need to rely on man. We need to rely on capital ships. Uh, and there's just been no, recently, no questioning of that core um, paradigm of relying on heavy-hitting, expensive capital ships. Yeah, uh, he must be very gratified by the direction the Navy's taken in the last, you know, at least in terms of its speculative wargaming and, and thinking, the direction the Navy's taken in the last decade or so. I mean, if I'm thinking of the work of Brian Clark and Dan Pat and others at CSBA or Hudson Institute, uh, the emphasis is clearly on breaking the capabilities crammed into a small number of exquisitely expensive and um, very intensively operated long-lasting capital ships into a disaggregated but connected and, and effective network of capabilities bound by you know, joint all-domain command and control or other kinds of concepts you might think of in order to, to, to break into the enemy's decision space and create dilemmas, uh, unresolvable dilemmas. I, I, I'd, I'd say that we've, we've apparently adapted the Watts theory of, of what's wrong with capital ships and, and how, how we should move beyond them. There's a lot, there's a lot there to argue mm -hmm. with, namely whether or not the Navy can ever realize a vision like this, at least within uh, the next 20 or 30 years in which it's going to matter, <laughs> and whether by breaking up capital ship capabilities you're going to yield uh, something that is less than the sum of its parts in the end. But that's an interesting idea. I like the thought a lot of getting students to question, not, not as, you know, nagging, gadfly, pointless critics, which is kind of easy to do. I mean, that's, they're 18 or 19. They're coming out of their parents' households for the most part. They're really good at figuring out what kinds of shibboleths the adults in the room hold and uh, nitpicking them apart. Uh, I say that with two teenagers. <laughs> um, but getting them not necessarily just a question, but to devise effective alternatives that are, again, consistent with what we take the purpose of naval power to be and how we understand it serving objectives you know, that, that, are, that are independent of the Navy itself that are external to the service and its, its intramural priorities, which is, again, something that, that they have yeah. to wrap their minds around. We, it's, I, I, we almost always start strategically with the idea that doing nothing is better than doing something. I always push them to answer that question first. In any given <laughs> historical scenario we look at, why, why was doing anything a better solution than kind of a, a, a physician's Hippocratic oath-like approach? First, do no harm. Don't make a bad situation worse. <laughs> uh, then why justify inter intervention on the basis of the concepts that we have? Right. You know, you know I'm, I was thinking from just from the, the historical perspective and then the, this Watts theory of capital ships, and is it always comes back to the Navy was intent on making the Navy work separately. And, and a lot of that goes back to the fact that the, the services were never organized together. Uh, until 1949, yep. under the National Military Establishment, later the Department of Defense. Before that, the, the, you got your, in, each service had its own secretary, and they worked for the president, and the only person who could tell both services what to do was the president himself. 
And in certain times, that happened. The Navy and the Army couldn't agree to help each other during the Civil Freaking War, and Lincoln himself had to get inserted into the process, literally taking cables from the Navy guy trying to build riverboats, and then turning around and sending it to the Army and saying, now me, President, says you give them money. Like, that was the only way things got probably done. probably a better system than the one we have now. I, I mean, there's certainly, certainly up for debate on that one. One uniform argue. guy in the room one yeah. military advisor to the president. Uh, can yeah. you imagine how World War II might have played out had the only military advisor to the president been not George Marshall and Hap Arnold and Ernie King, but, and sometimes a commandant of the Marine Corps, but Douglas MacArthur? Oh, God. <laughs> what a terrifying thing. Or thought. just Ernie King. Um, today, that's the situation we have post-Goldwater Nichols, which I had never talked with midshipmen about. You know, I, I, that's not true. I, I attempted a couple of times to get into the, the great mid-80s reorganization of, of American military jointness that is Goldwater-Nichols, but it was so far beyond both their historical framework and I think their institutional, their professional self-knowledge at that point that it, I didn't find it to be especially useful. But that, that really does play to the core of yeah, no, what it, we're trying to Navy, get at in terms of the, the purposes, the utility of naval power. Yeah, I mean, Navy's never been, I mean, I don't say Navy's never been, nobody's ever been great at joint. I mean, the, 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 the active duty joke is how do you spell joint? A-R-M-Y. Well, I would say, They're the ones that wouldn't do it you argue right? that we've been better at it than almost anybody else? Yes, I'm 100%, and I'm saying right now we're, we're, we're good at it. Historically, we were beyond bloody awful. And I mean, it, it, even in the case of World War II, it was, it was a hard thing yeah. to get figured out. We still wanted to operate in our silos. It was like, okay, the Navy will take the Central Pacific, the Army will take the South Pacific. The Navy will put the Army ashore and then screw off and let the army go do its thing. Yeah, Joe, that's a, that, you know, it's an excellent insight and it plays to one of, one of the, the probably the four primary course themes I, I emphasize in, in my teaching of naval history and that is jointness. Um, a little bit in the Mexican War in my syllabus, we just speak about it very briefly, but especially in the Civil War. Uh, jointness is um, combined arms, combined operations as they were called at the time, are figure very prominently and we talk at length about how difficult it is to reconcile competing service cultures and priorities under unified command structures according to priorities frequently different than those that the services themselves have come up with. Um, and it remains a, a massive common theme of the way professional officers today have to understand themselves, at least at the level at which you hope to be educating them for, mm -hmm. right? To plant that seed in their head and understand the, uh, the, the holistic character of any strategic undertaking. Exactly. So yeah. pre-Mahan, yeah. pre the Navy was very much set on trying to impose some level of, of impact diplomatically, economically, and militarily. But it wasn't always super easy. I always ask my, the question I always ask, I pose to my students, has the Navy, can the Navy win a war by itself? And has the Navy ever fought a war by itself? And the answer is the, the, only, the only war that the Navy successfully, I want to say fought, by itself is the Barbary War. But they couldn't win it by themselves without raising an army ashore to take land. And it's like, hey, guys, I love the Navy. The Navy's job is amazing, but you can surround an island with all the battleships in the world, but you can't conquer that island with just boats. You have to put people ashore. You have to hold it. The Navy cannot maintain territory. That's its, that's its big downfall. 
That's why jointness is super critical, but that's one of the reasons, that's the, both, both the benefit and the, the, the downside of Mahan, was Mahan gave the Navy this, this change of purpose Almost from, like I feel like when you say his name, you have to light mm-hmm. candles and bow at the altar, but it's, it's to invoke Mahan in that way, but he gave the Navy sort of this diplomatic purposes, economic purposes there. Those come from taking the purpose of what the, you know, what the, what Klaus would said the purpose of the army was, and now we'll just do it to the Navy. The Navy's purpose is to go out there and kill the other Navy. Go out there with the biggest guns possible, get in a fight, and win. And you find that to be anachronistic as a concept. Then and now, misguided. Not, not, not misguided. For what, how the navies thought about navies, for how militaries, every military. I mean, and I'm not going to. This is not just an American silo. My hands impacts were 100% global, but there was very few services, or, or I should say very few nations that could jointly work their army and their navy together to make those sort of combined effects uh, campaigns. The British Navy was the British Navy, and uh, what, what did uh, Fisher call the, uh, the, the British Army around to be fired ashore by the, by the British Navy? Uh, the Japanese Army and Navy, boy, wow, did they hate each other. I mean, they, they, they took service rivalry to a whole new, to a whole new level, like political assassinations level. The, you know, the German Army and Navy never had any reason to operate with each other because they had totally different spheres of operation. The, the only time that those effects came together was at the political or national strategy level of damaging mm-hmm. the French or the, Ger- or the British. We're the only ones that ever needed to operate them simultaneously in the same area, with the exception of, like, you know, Gallipoli, and we saw how well that worked. Yeah, I'm not sure that we, we are historically the only ones for whom that was a priority. Okay, that's, that's fair. We, that's we fair. may own, the examples we tend to think of and the concepts under which we organize them tend to be characteristically American. Yes. But, but militaries in the past have had national strategic objectives that involved influencing affairs ashore and across bodies of water that necessitated naval power. Um, they may not have conceptualized it in the same way or understood it in the ways that would make it coherent to us, but I, I'm, I'm confident that... that that inter-service collaboration isn't unique to the United States. Oh no, absolutely not. I, I, I'm, I'm also pretty, pretty certain that this plays to bigger questions of of national strategic priority. I, I don't find it implausible that a perfectly credible nation state could understand its interests as not consisting of influencing affairs ashore, and really of developing a conception of of naval power that that does simply emphasize purely maritime forms of, of influence and possibly superiority. To what broader end? I'm not quite sure, apart from some form of denial, some in, a, in the service of isolationism on some level. It's, I don't know what kind of a nation that would be historically, but I can, I can certainly imagine one like that theoretically. Not um, Mahan yeah. and Yomini all come back to what they learned in the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon was very good at crushing an army in the field, and that generated the political consequences. The, the change required from the war, the political o- outcome, was accomplished by defeating the army. I gotta but give Mahan credit this way. Oh, I yeah. mean, I don't know what, what deterrence presence, deterrence through presence or deterrence through any other aspect of, of Navy 
roles and missions would look like if not based on combat credibility. And combat credibility in the age of the battleship, uh, <laughs> um, steam-propelled, armored uh, warships equipped with very heavy armor-damaging, if not piercing, ordnance, that's going to be a capital ship-intensive engagement, and the engagement will depend on throw weight, and it'll depend on range and endurance and staying ability in the fight. It's a pretty Mahanian equation. I'm not sure that we've left Mahan that far behind. You know, we still conceive of strike off an aircraft carrier deck as the primary way to kill things, break things, blow things up uh, in, in, in ways that, that are compelling to opponents who fear that. that. You know, and deterrence is based on that. Where I tend to take the class is understanding the, not, I don't want to say the industrial revolution, but the technological revolution that spawns around very much that same time in communications. Um, I'd say I wanted to include it in my last, uh, last semester, but I, I didn't get a chance to. Uh, Nick Lambert's book on Gallipoli uh, that just came out oh, yeah. that is unbelievable in terms of its depth of research, but will make your mind melt a little bit as you go through all the information that he's thrown out about wheat prices and the global uh, you know, economics of eating and food and how much that drove the need to open Gallipoli and the, and the Straits to start moving Ukrainian grain in and out uh, to the Russians. I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought of that as a major part of that. But how much the global economy became a thing as a result of undersea cable how much shipping had changed from you know, what was the carry trade that was you know, individual merchants to real national level economies and how the Navy plays into that. And that's where Mahan starts to seize on things. Oh yeah, naval history becomes economic history. When, mm, when I mean, you conceive he, of the ways in which nations understand the bases of their prosperity, their prospects, wealth creation, their interdependence on markets abroad and the need to exercise influence mm -hmm. there. That's what Mahan said. You know, yeah. A sea power, two words. Yeah, it's a basic insight. Is you know, a, a nation that uses the sea to in, in improve its power as a nation. The Navy must protect that. That's the whole purpose. And it does that by killing the enemy. Well, I use it in looking at all these different events, right? How the Navy interacted with whatever the geopolitics of the time was, and how the leaders, the naval leaders, political leaders, conceptualized their use of those naval assets. And it's largely, regardless of the situation on the ground, regardless of the realities going on, it's largely conceptualized in the same way, right? And so we can tie that back to why are navies structured the same way uh, throughout the 20th century, with, of course, different types of ships coming up, but with the capital ship always remaining as the centerpiece of naval operations, instead of distributed, uh, well, I guess distributed lethality was a buzzword, what, 10 years ago, maybe less? It's still a buzzword um, today, at but, least conceptually right. it's the buzzword for the um, navy. And so I, I just use it to look at all the different historical events and see the ways in which navies were conceptualized or thought about. Um, and to show them, generally speaking, that it hasn't much changed. 
uh, over the past hundred years in terms of what a Navy's purpose was. And while littoral combat ships may have come up over the last 15 years or so, they are still very much on the periphery of the Navy's strategic thinking, right? They have a very different mission than a carrier, than a destroyer, than a cruiser. Uh, but many argue that because of that, they've been pushed aside and they will remain on the periphery of naval strategic thinking rather than representing a doctrin uh, doctrinal shift of naval thought. Do you disagree? Are you surprised about something? Is this on the record? It doesn't have to be. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm puzzled. It it's, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm confused how you would, how you would con incorporate the capabilities represented by the LCS or combatants designed with inadequate range, complicated engineering, very limited strike capability within a very narrow radius, uh, limited sensor capability, all that the LCS or a cheap ship acquired in large numbers what kind of a strategy would you see built on that kind of a capability? Yeah, and that is the question that everybody's asking about the LCS. What can you actually do with these colloquially known as well? Probably a ships, lot of right? things. They just don't matter for the things that the American people are financing a navy for primarily. On you know, we may have a top line today. I don't know what even under a what's the top line of the defense budget in 20 the 21 it's 740 750 they added another 25 billion or something I'm, like I'm that I'm bad at math I, I don't I pay, so I, don't pay I mean attention. it's extravagantly high but it's also importantly constrained and it's pulled in a number of directions you know resources are not infinite the navy has to make a lot of tough choices it always has been i i don't think capital ship intensivity in terms of force structure is is I don't know I'm not I've never I haven't seen it as very problematic we haven't fought a peer competitor in more than 70 years navies aren't particularly innovative I, I this a core concept to teaching naval history I try to emphasize drum into the midshipmen continually is that navies historically have been incredibly resistant to innovation down to the present day, and for good reason. You know, war is risky. A bird in the hand is worth way more than two in the bush in terms of capabilities that you're in the process of developing against the ones you already have in the fleet. Until you're proven wrong through the test of combat, you rely on what's tried and true. And, uh, you know, the people we recruit and, and retain and promote tend to be conformists. They, they are people who function well in hierarchical organizations and take orders, and they uh, are accustomed to moving along established pathways. This all makes for organizations that, that change reluctantly or slowly uh, and, and not with great, not, not, not with great foresight, I would say. Yeah, so I... I'm not sure why you'd get away from capital ships until they're proven to be an inadequate way. And, I, and you do that through wargaming primarily. I mean, it's really when I mentioned, when I mentioned Brian Clark and Dan <laughs> Pat and the, and the basis of distributed lethality as a concept. This is really something born in the Mosaic War Games that they organized and ran a few years ago. And, and uh, their ability to, which are not credible to lots of people. I mean, you, you get a lot of senior officers in, in uh if you talk to them privately, they'll say, well, it's just a game. It's a game, and, and I'm not going to invest. I, I, if I was in charge, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
you know, turn a $20 billion shipbuilding account wholesale in that direction instead of these established programs we have running on the basis of tried and true technologies and et cetera, et cetera. Um, all I'm hearing that, that I'm loving right now, but I'm, I'm also like laughing a little bit over on the side here thinking about, well, is it capital ships or the littoral combat ships, small, lighter, less heavily armed, meant to stay coastal for the purpose of presence and deterrence and defense, and it's Jefferson's gunboat navy. Yeah. We've played this game. Oh, we can't match the British Navy. We're not going to build ships of the line. We're not going to. We're going to stick to some small frigates, and we're going to build a bunch of gunboats and fort coastal defenses. We're going to keep to our coast, and we're going to defend from incursion. And it so was and that's that's where I think you know that's not bad the strategic idea. grounding though. No, 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 I mean, no, 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 we, no, no. I, I, obviously not. We, but it's, we've arrived from at the a historic insight. standpoint. It's just funny to see the. It's pretty clear that the, li the liberal hegemony of the United States overseas in the Western Pacific and the security architecture there it underwrites is uniquely susceptible to what are effectively Chinese home operations, you know? And their, their strategic objectives are far more limited. They don't anticipate at this point pushing power across the Pacific and operating against our coasts in the way that we do every day against theirs. Uh, we, have, we have unique strategic problems that necessitate orienting our power, our, our, our naval power, away from established pathways, probably. And, and you, you search for historical precedent. This all sounds very presentist, uh, apologetically. This sounds very, very contemporary. And, and I'm not a contemporary naval policy analyst. I, let me, but one doesn't teach naval history in isolation from contemporary affairs. After all, the people, you know, it would be like trying to teach engineering or trying to teach science strictly from an historical point of view. It would have kind of an antiquarian quality. It would probably be completely useless to kids who are graduating, you know, as actors, as decision makers, as practitioners of naval warfare, as Marine Corps officers. Uh, you've got to understand naval history in terms of, of where the current winds are blowing. And I'm always trying to mine the past primarily to understand the, the present, that you've got to be very careful about these sorts of selective analogies. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I don't, I don't well, want to take up all of our time. Because you, you did circle back around to what has become the thrust of this discussion, which is why are we trying to teach midshipmanness and how are we trying to teach midshipmanness? And I think you just put a bow on it pretty nicely. That's exactly why we need to. And although, like you said, that can be a problematic way to approach contemporary problems, it's still an invaluable tool to understand how we got to the point where we have these problems and why we're addressing these problems the way we are and that's also what Mac was saying with the contemporary, uh, or excuse me, with the obsolescence capital ship theory book, is you do need, along with wargaming as well, ways to challenge these established ideas, which again is why we're teaching why these are the established ideas. I, I think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. That we're, the obsolescence of capital ship theory, I would take his, I haven't read the book, but I would, I would take it to mean that, that the Navy retains some kind of dogged adherence to the beautiful, stately, majestic vision of big ships manned yeah, by exactly. professional officers exactly. who, um, I, 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 I'll try to strip that conception of any romantic imagery and say that capital ships represent a more efficient way to pack lots of capabilities into comparatively more affordable and defensible packages in certain threat environments that probably historically has made a lot of sense. 
we have hard analysis today that suggests it doesn't make a lot more sense. And getting the Navy to steer away from those kinds of things is hard, as it turns out these days. That mm -hmm. conversation's been ongoing for a decade. It's beginning to gain traction. To me, that's, that's the crux of the, his, the way you teach history. This we're, we're training kids who are going to graduate into an organization that is in a state of crisis. It's in a state of crisis strategically. It's in a state of crisis operationally. It faces gross uncertainty in the theaters of conflict that are go going to bear most directly on the American national interest abroad. They're, they're graduating into a tough, tough, tough job. And no matter how many push-ups they do, or pull-ups they demonstrate the ability to do, or how many football games a Naval Academy wins, the job out there isn't gonna get any easier unless they learn to tackle it intellectually. And that conversation has to start in the Naval History course they take as plebes. I think you gotta talk about the urgency of these presentist concerns and draw historically in ways that speak to that. I, but, I, but you got to be selective about it, too. Yeah, Marcus, I think that's so important. You know, when I, uh, my very first class uh, of the semester, I always talk about what is history, right? A brief, different fields. And whenever I get to this idea of intellectual history, which just sounds pretentious by the name alone, intellectual history, right? <laughs> but this idea of how ideas I mean, not wrong. spread, right? How do we get different strategies or philosophies, and what are the methods of transmission of these ideas? I think that's really what a lot of these kids are missing uh, from prior classes when they come here is ju just the, they accept this is how things are. This mm -hmm. is the present. It doesn't matter if it's been different in the past. This is what we have now. But I, you know, I think it's really important to try to get these midshipmen to think about how ideas about naval strategy, about naval thought have spread throughout time and what factors influenced those different strategies, different schools of thought, right? Whether we're talking about the Jeune École or if we're talking about the British and the Germans at that same time in World War I, right? Why were they thinking differently about strategy? Um, so that's kind of the main thrust of where I try to that's take my- good. I'm that's good. That's, that's encouraging, yeah. actually, that's, that you like teach that. it from an intellectually oriented point of view. I, uh, as I said at the outset, that, that is a striking contrast from the more materiel based perspective. I mean, I, I, I kind of start with, with strategy requirements and capabilities slash technology. I give them that basic, that basic breakdown on the very first day. I mean, we, we talk a little bit about technology push, you know, but mostly we talk about requirements, you know, requirements pull. We start with ships, Humphreys frigates, a Civil War gunboat, a battleship, a contemporary aircraft carrier. You say, what is it you want to do with naval power? What am I going to have to have in order to do those things? I can have a lot of things. I can have a thousand tiny ships that can hit only things within 100 miles and have short legs and can't have to be deployed from forward bases in theater that the Chinese can melt. Or I'm going to have to push power across the ocean with great big ships that have to carry all of their fuel and ordnance with them and have to be able to operate autonomously for two weeks, cycling 120 sorties a day. When you start saying, well, my requirements are 120 sorties a day with all the ordnance and fuel that requires and a fleet train that won't be inadequate, you end up with a 120,000 ton carrier pretty quick. Mm -hmm because that's what the requirement is. And then you talk about the technologies you have to develop in order to make that a reality. We, we talk about kill chains, 
you know, um, how to close a kill chain, the technologies that are fundamental to kill chain efficacy. That's very materiel. It really is. I think it's maybe intellectually derived on the level of strategy because you end up talking a little bit about where the ideas of national interest come from and the utility of naval power and the minds of people. But really, it's constrained by resources more than anything else. I mean, if the Chinese develop a special ship death ray in the next year, you know, something that can put so much energy on a target that, a, that an aircraft carrier just melts, you know, and they can deploy it and, and it has a range of like 800 miles or something like that. And it, 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 that's going to change naval power a lot, you know, like in a short time. Um, technology really counts for a lot. So that's fair. You know, I'm going to say I take, I, I, I take Mac's idea of a little further, I guess, in, in my right, I should say, I expand on it a little bit more. It, I always turn to start with not just, you know, what is history, but why are you in college? What's the purpose of, of, of a, sec, of a post-secondary education? It's to think, and again, it sounds pretentious to say think about thinking, yeah. but I always, you know, describe the difference between you know, what you learn in high school is enough to survive life. You take the things that are taught to you, you accept them as truth, you move on. Survive but, life is what? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's that point. But what we want them to do is accept that everything they've been taught is an assumption right. until they verify it themselves with evidence and create their own conclusions based on multiple sources of input. That's, I always tell my students, if they believe everything I say, they're taking my class wrong. Exactly. <laughs> they need to question, yeah. you know, yeah. not only question their own assumptions, but everything, but learn, well. yeah. and make your own decisions based on evidence. And that's not always the easiest one to do navally, because in the other one, I always like to start with, and really, I, I do this as part of a learning how to write a paper better and forming an argument that you had, can support, because right. I always say, like, I'm going to, like, if I asked you to write a paper, why is the U.S. Navy the best Navy in the world? Can you answer that question? And they would be like, uh, and I just, again, the deer in the headlights that's as they really tried to. It's a hard question. I don't think really I could answer that but, question I mean, in an essay. But it's one of the ones you ask, I mean, you ask the kid, try it with your students. Is the U.S. Navy the best Navy in the world? Resounding yes from all around because, I mean, what, call it one indoctrination, two, and then but just go, why? And they'll be like, we you have I mean? the most <laughs> ships. And I'll be like, do we? And they'll be like, well, they're the best, are they? Well, we have more airplanes, do you? And it's, they, they don't have, I want to say, a definition or a, a reasoning to explain why First that they're the, the best mostest Navy in the world. Kind of <laughs> and, but then that's when I can start launching on the history and saying, like, but we never were, but we weren't, but we, not, but no, we never wanted to be until essentially World War II. Yeah. And that struggle... And they start to get a little, I want to say a little bit of humility that I really want them to get, but also that, hey, why do you think that? Because you told me to, drill sergeant. Um, but Yeah, yeah. <laughs> humility is a good thing to inculcate in any well-educated person, uh, be they at a military academy or a civilian college. I try to scare the hell out of them. I'm not trying to make them humble. I'm oh, I do that to, naturally. You know, so yeah. the, uh, the Chinese have been studying you since the first Gulf War. That war shocked the hell out of the Chinese military establishment, as it did most nations around the world, the military establishments of nations around the world. They'd never seen 
so lopsided a victory based on so technologically intensive a form of superiority. And they have spent 30 years studying everything you do and how you learn and your capabilities and figuring out how to beat you. And they're going to beat you. They're going to make your life very wet very quickly out there in the Pacific. And you better start getting serious at the age of 18 about what you're doing here, what you're learning that's going to make you effective. You want to beat them before they have a chance. Yeah. And it's going to be their Navy in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. They're just relying on superior, superior rank and, and, and older officers to guide them through this process generationally. We're all going to lose. They've, that, you scare the hell out of them by telling them that this isn't college and uh, you're not going into a conventional job. You're going into the hardest job in the world. It really is cognitively, intellectually, the most challenging job in the world, contemporary officership. And maybe they won't really face those challenges for 20 years until they're 06s or flag officers, and maybe they'll never face those challenges in a serious way, even, even decades down the road. But if we don't start treating all of them this way, we may not have the ones who can. Just to bring it full circle back to, like, we were talking about the obsolescence of capital ships and them coming into this as both education and training as an environment and why, you know, because you scare the hell out of them with the Chinese and they, 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 they're getting better than us because they saw that and they want to learn from it. Necessity is the mother of invention. Invention is innovation. Why do people innovate? Because what they have doesn't work or what they have won't work. So we have the biggest, best, boldest Navy, Army, Air Force in the world. And anybody who would want to challenge that looks and goes, well, I'm not going to beat them on a traditional field of battle. Yeah. So they came up with something different. Why would that's they play why to the, our strengths? That's yeah. Exactly. The, so who's got the best cyber systems in the world? China. Who, or, or, or Russia, debatable. Who's got command, really, of the space domain? China. <laughs> yeah. They got better at these other ways because we were so focused on martial strength, be it the capital ship, be it the strategic bomber, be it the nuclear weapon. We've more, got more, more overt signs of power. Exactly. While we left behind the more covert, the, the, the less obvious yeah. signs of national Whether strength. it's Mahan, whether it's Yomini, whether it's uh, LeMay, American military strategy is based on the theory of overwhelming power. Overwhelming force, overwhelming speed, overwhelming everything. Yeah. Which is nice when you have it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it, nice it's if you have an enemy that's going to meet you on the field like an that. An expedient recourse when it's likely to work. I, 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 don't, I, I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. The United States can no longer enjoy the conceit of overmatch. And by virtue of that, it now requires yep. strategy. We haven't required strategy for a long time. Exactly. We haven't had to think about leveraging strengths against weaknesses. And we can't innovate our way backwards into something. Because it, why did the Germans develop a U-boat? Because they couldn't match the British Navy. And it was effective. It was damn effective. It's, it's, I mean, you, there's, there's so many examples on why, why did we invent that? Why did the Japanese have more aircraft carriers and the best pilots in the world in 1941? Because, uh, well, something, something Washington Naval Treaty, but they knew they couldn't match us gun for gun with battleships. So they got better at something different, and we weren't prepared for it. 
I feel like we should have talked more about history today. You know, like... <laughs> well, that's what part two is for. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.